Hello and welcome to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, December 28th, 2023, the only podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Ex-European Union President Jacques Delors dies at aged 98. Michigan's Supreme Court keeps Trump on the 2024 ballot. Ukraine aims to mobilize 500,000 new troops. Turkey's Foreign Affairs Commission approves Sweden's NATO bid. The New York Times sues Microsoft and OpenAI for alleged copyright infringement. Turkey strikes 71 targets in Iraq and Syria. China sanctions a U.S. firm researching alleged Uyghur abuses. South Korea sanctions eight North Koreans. A migrant caravan advances north as U.S. officials hold talks in Mexico. And a report finds nearly 400 U.K. children under seven were sent to the Tavistock Transgender Clinic. In our top story, the former European Commission President Jacques Delors dead at 98. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, France 24, Bloomberg, Euronews, Reuters, and Politico. Jacques Delors, former European Commission or EC president considered a founding father of the modern European Union, or EU, passed away on Wednesday at age 98, according to a statement released by his family. After serving as a finance minister under French President Francois Mitterrand from 1981 to 1984, He served for 10 years as head of the EU's European Commission from 1985 to 1995, making major strides to further European integration. Under his tenure, Delors spearheaded the creation of the single market, the introduction of the euro, and an increased membership from 10 to 15 countries. In 1993, he oversaw the ratification of the Maastricht Treaty, which formally created the EU. Other career highlights include the creation of the Schengen Zone, which eliminated many border checks between EU member states, the Erasmus Student Exchange Program, and the Common Agricultural Policy. His advocacy for a federalized Europe faced stiff opposition in the UK, with Delors often sparring with Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher over increasing the EU's power. In a 2007 interview, Delors warned that the EU could disintegrate in 20 years unless it reformed. Tributes to Delors came from figures such as French President Emmanuel Macron, who called Delors the inexhaustible craftsman of our Europe. EC President Ursula von der Leyen, European Council President Charles Michel, and EU Chief Diplomat Joseph Borrell. Eric, thanks for all the facts. On our first story today, we're going to start our first round of narrative spins on this story with France 24 beginning with a narrative A. From the free movement of goods, people, and a common currency, Jacques Delors forged a new Europe based on the principles of cooperation, democracy, and liberty. His life's work has made Europe a more secure, prosperous place and serves as an example of what a united Europe is capable of accomplishing. In the aftermath of Brexit, the migrant crisis, and the war in Ukraine, European leaders could learn much from Delors' singular vision and exemplary leadership. Narrative B comes from Fee. Delors was the architect of a doomed European project. Much of what ails the Union can be traced back to policies that he championed. Delors promoted a sprawling, centralized federal EU that has seemingly failed to rise to any of the most pressing challenges facing the continent. Sadly, he lived to see his life's work tarnished by ineffective governance and a rise in nationalism across Europe. 
as what little enthusiasm for European integration remains slowly fizzles out. And from time to time, we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. They've got an opinion on this story, and they think that there's a 50% chance that the EU will have at least 31 member states by 2040. The state of Michigan rejects an attempt to ban Trump from their primary ballot. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the USA Today, BBC News, Reuters.com, Time, and The Hill. The Michigan Supreme Court on Wednesday refused to hear an appeal of a lower court ruling, in effect allowing former President Donald Trump to appear on the state's Republican primary ballot in the race for the 2024 presidential nomination despite a lawsuit challenging his eligibility. Free Speech for People, an advocacy group, has appealed the lower court ruling, arguing Trump, the Republican frontrunner, is forbidden from returning to the White House based on his alleged attempt to prevent the certification of Democratic challenger Joe Biden's win in the 2020 presidential election. The advocacy group cited the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which bars officials who engage in insurrection of rebellion from serving in federal office. In a brief, the court said it wasn't persuaded that the questions presented should be reviewed by this court. By not hearing the case, the state Supreme Court fell into agreement with the lower court that Michigan law doesn't allow the Secretary of State to determine who a party places on its primary ballots. The Michigan decision comes a week after the Colorado Supreme Court ruled 4-3 to overturn a lower court ruling and ban Trump from appearing on the state's primary ballot, based on his involvement in the January 6, 2021 riots at the U.S. Capitol. Trump's lawyers are expected to appeal that decision, which is temporarily on hold, to the U.S. Supreme Court. Adam, thanks for the facts. The first spin is a pro-Trump narrative coming from Town Hall. The Biden administration's attempts to paint Trump as an insurrectionist are lunacy. In fact, he hasn't been charged with insurrection in any of the politically motivated criminal cases against him. The Michigan court chose reason over a witch hunt, and hopefully other states will follow suit as this election interference by the incumbent president is wasting Trump's resources and tearing apart the American electoral system. And Salon is going to counter that with an anti-Trump narrative. The court ducked its responsibility to make sure political parties are only putting candidates on a state's primary ballot who are eligible to serve in the office, a category that excludes insurrectionists. The narrow decision, though, allows for a challenge to the general election ballot if Trump is the nominee and allows other states to take up the matter moving forward. According to the Metaculous Prediction community, there's a 90% chance that Trump will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 presidential election. News coming out of Ukraine as the government introduces a bill to mobilize 500,000 new troops. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukraine'sska Pravda, Ukraine News, Kiev Post, and Washington Post. Following remarks from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky earlier in the month, in which he stated that the military will need to mobilize an additional 450 to 500,000 troops next year, Ukraine's government has this week submitted a draft law to achieve the aim. The proposed law, Bill 10378, makes widespread changes to mobilization eligibility, including lowering the conscription age from 27 to 25. It also includes measures to send electronic summonses to strengthen restrictions on those who try to avoid service. 
The government's website crashed, becoming temporarily unavailable as a result of so many Ukrainians attempting to access the proposals. While some of the proposals are broadly supported, such as the removal of exemptions for students pursuing second degrees, others have been more controversial, such as plans to scrap exemptions for those possessing what the Ukrainian government defines as, quote, Group 3 disabilities. Under the new plans, parents of those with, quote, Group 3 disabilities will also no longer be exempt from service. Underlining the sensitivity of the discussions, the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, Valery Zelushny, on Tuesday held his first press conference in nearly two years of war. He sought to explain why such changes to the mobilization law were necessary. However, in a rare acknowledgment of military losses, Zelushny pushed back against Zelensky's request for troops that have already been fighting for two years to be demobilized as soon as possible. Under current Ukrainian laws, troops are meant to be rotated out after six months of fighting. Zelushny said he would need, quote, at least two times more troops in order to comply with the law. Meanwhile, after earlier denials from Ukrainian officials, Zelushny also conceded that Russia has taken control of the town of Marinka in Donetsk. Quote, this is a war, he said, so the fact that we have now retreated to the outskirts of Marinka and set up positions behind Marinka in some areas is nothing that can cause any public outcry. Sadly, this is what war is like. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story and for the update on the situation in Ukraine. We're going to start this round of spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Ukranska Pravda. These are sensitive proposals which affects the lives of nearly every Ukrainian. It is only right that they are openly discussed in public so that everyone can understand the motivations behind the decision-making. These are necessary changes to put Ukraine in a stronger position to win the war in the coming year. American conservative has an establishment critical narrative. The West's collective failure in seeking to expand NATO eastwards to Russia's borders started this war, which has resulted in Ukraine losing vast swaths of territory as well as untold numbers of men and women. Rather than continue prolonging this devastation, Ukraine needs to push for peace. And the nerds are going to chime in with their opinion. They think that there's a 1% chance that there will be a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict before 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The Turkish Committee approves Sweden's NATO bid. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America, Associated Press, Guardian, Forbes, Al Jazeera, and France 24. Sweden's potential accession to NATO received a major boost on Tuesday after Turkey's Parliamentary Foreign Affairs Commission approved its membership bid. Turkey had delayed Sweden's bid for 19 months, demanding security-related concessions from Stockholm. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan had opposed Sweden's membership, but he reversed his objection in July. However, he waited several months to send the bill to Parliament, and it took weeks for the Foreign Affairs Commission to approve the accession. Sweden's Foreign Minister Tobias Bilstrom told Swedish media, We look forward to becoming a member of NATO, and he added that the next step was a full vote in the Turkish Parliament. A date hasn't been set for a parliamentary vote, but Erdogan's ruling alliance holds a majority of seats and will likely vote to ratify Sweden's accession. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Nordic countries, Finland and Sweden, dropped a long-standing position of neutrality to join the security alliance in 2022. 
Finland joined NATO in April, but Sweden's bid has been derailed by Hungary and Turkey, which claims that the Nordic country has been too lenient on Kurdish terrorist groups. All 31 NATO members must vote to approve a new member, and in order to secure Turkey's acceptance, Sweden partnered with Finland, Canada, and the Netherlands to relax arms export policies affecting Turkey. Meanwhile, Erdogan also suggested Turkish support for Sweden's accession was contingent on U.S. approval of F-16 fighter jet sales to Ankara. NATO chief Jans Stoltenberg said he expects both Turkey and Hungary to complete their ratifications as soon as possible. The Biden administration had promised to sell $20 billion of F-16s to Turkey, but the sale has been blocked over Erdogan's tensions with Israel and Greece. Adam, thank you for the facts. The round of spins begins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from modern diplomacy. Sweden's imminent accession to NATO and Finland's approval earlier this year are key diplomatic wins for international security. Peace is attained through unity and strength, so adding two historically neutral countries from Northern Europe to the military alliance will go a long way toward deterring aggression. With Russia on the offensive in Ukraine, all hands must be on deck to stop further attacks. While some countries may want to keep out of conflict, modern defense requires a unified front, and NATO is the main protector of the global order. And the establishment critical narrative is brought to us by RT. NATO claims to seek peace in Europe, but the fact is that the expansion of the aggressive military alliance is only destabilizing the continent. NATO has essentially become an anti-Russian alliance that seeks to provoke Moscow and create conflict. Moreover, NATO is destroying the concept of neutrality and non-interventionism by calling on all members to pick a side in conflicts that have nothing to do with them. NATO is hostile towards its perceived enemies, and Sweden is actually itching closer towards provoking conflict, not deterring it. There's another nerd narrative coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's a 96% chance that Sweden will join NATO before 2025. Well, of course. Look at the way they're shaking hands like that. You, you only shake hands like that when you're either going to join NATO or you just agreed to the sale of a new horse. You know what? The guy in the middle, the guy that's standing in the middle looks like he needs to see a guy about a horse. <laughs> <laughs> the New York Times sues OpenAI and Microsoft for alleged copyright infringement. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Wall Street Journal, Verge, Fox News, and Washington Post. The New York Times filed a lawsuit against OpenAI, the company behind ChatGBT, as well as Microsoft, which invests in and supplies the chatbot through its Azure cloud computing technology, on Wednesday, alleging, quote, billions of dollars in losses due to the unlawful copying and use of the Times' uniquely valuable works. The suit claims that the company's artificial intelligence, or AI products, including Microsoft's Copilot, were trained using millions of pieces of New York Times content. This, the lawsuit alleges, has drawn would-be readers away from the newspaper and thus deprived it of advertisement, subscription, and licensing revenue. The lawsuit, which comes after months of failed commercial negotiations between the paper and the tech companies, further argues that Times journalism is the work of thousands of journalists, whose employment costs hundreds of millions of dollars per year, and that Microsoft and OpenAI have, quote, effectively avoided spending the billions of dollars by taking it without permission or compensation. 
The Times is one of several media outlets in recent months to block OpenAI's web crawler from scraping its content. Others include the BBC, CNN, and Reuters. On the flip side, the parent company of Politico and Business Insider, Axel Springer, made a deal to allow OpenAI and let ChatGPT use both sources' content. The Associated Press also struck a two-year deal allowing OpenAI to use its content. OpenAI claims its use of copyrighted material falls under a legal doctrine known as fair use. It adds that it utilizes the original works in a, quote, highly transformative way and then takes the learned human patterns to create new material different from the original work. As the media industry grapples with how to deal with emerging AI technology, a growing number of creative professionals, from journalists to artists to musicians and filmmakers, are filing their own lawsuits. These include authors George R.R. R. Martin, Jody Picoult, Jonathan Franzen, and George Saunders, as well as 583 news organizations, including the Washington Post and Reuters. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We're going to start these round of spins with a narrative A provided by the Los Angeles Times. This isn't your typical plagiarism scandal, and anyone who's ever put time and effort into writing something knows that OpenAI, now a billion-dollar-per-year company, not only steals the hard-earned published works of famous writers and organizations, but has also learned to mimic the styles of lesser-known bloggers. If lawmakers can't figure out how to regulate the AI industry, creative professionals will be faced with immediate loss of income and eventual career extinction. Narrative B comes from the Columbia Journalism Review. No one is arguing that copying works word for word is allowed, but there's a more nuanced way of looking at this issue. Just as great authors often read and base their work on others' published books, AI bots read, digest, and transform content they find online. If AI companies are caught plagiarizing, they should be forced to retract and compensate. But if they simply study human patterns and create novel literature from their newfound knowledge, then they should be treated as any author who's read others' books. And the nerds think that there's a 23% chance that the percentage of the U.S. workforce employed in white-collar jobs will decrease by at least two percentage points below the 2022 level before 2026 potentially due to the influence of other AI or other factors, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. Eric, have you ever had your um, voice fed into an AI uh, voice creator and read something AI? Absolutely. I do it all the time. I do it all the time. And once the AI bot hears my voice, they quit. <laughs> the AI bot quits. It stops. It just That's can't. Right. It's like does yeah. not compute. Yeah, they give up. They're like, nope. There's no way. Can't. Is compete. that because you're actually a copy of a copy? Actually, yes. You can't AI one more time. It would just right. It would be like the whole um, the multiplicity syndrome. Is it possible for your voice to get even dumber? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Turkey hit 71 targets in Iraq and Syria. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera and Associated Press. Turkish Defense Minister Yusar Galad said on a message posted to X, formerly Twitter, on Wednesday that at least 59 Kurdish fighters had been neutralized in airstrikes and 71 sites allegedly linked to Kurdish groups in Syria and northern Iraq following the deaths of 12 Turkish soldiers in northern Iraq. Six Turkish soldiers were reportedly killed on Friday when militants affiliated with the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or the PKK, attempted to infiltrate a Turkish military base in northern Iraq's semi-autonomous Kurdish region. 
Six more Turkish soldiers were killed the following day in additional clashes with the PKK. Syria's Kurdish administration has reached out to the UN to intervene, saying that some of the airstrikes have hit vital infrastructure sites in northeast Syria, including key oil industry sites, health facilities, and more. According to the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces and the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, at least eight civilians were killed in Turkish airstrikes in Syria on Monday, and at least 12 civilians were wounded. A Syrian Democratic Forces spokesman said two women were among those killed. The PKK has been engaged in a conflict against the Turkish state since 1984 and is considered a terrorist organization by Turkey, the EU, and the U.S., more than 40,000 people have reportedly been killed in the decades-long conflict. Thanks for the facts, Adam. This story has generated two spins, the first one being Narrative A, coming from Daily Sabah. The deaths of the 12 Turkish soldiers are tragic and only serve to further strengthen Ankara's resolve. Turkey is committed to eradicating the terrorist threat within and beyond its borders. We're going to continue the spin with a Narrative B provided by ABC News. Civilians are being killed and wounded in the clash between the Turkish military and the PKK. Turkey is intentionally targeting civilian vital infrastructure in Syria and risks destabilizing the region even further. These airstrikes must stop. China sanctions a U.S. firm over Xinjiang research. Here are the facts as agreed upon by XM, Wall Street Journal, ECNS, South China Morning Post, and The Standard. China on Tuesday announced the imposition of sanctions on Los Angeles-based data firm Quran for providing evidence on alleged forced labor in Xinjiang. The move came after the U.S. put curbs on three Chinese firms earlier this month after Quran claimed they forcefully deployed thousands of laborers in 2017. Denying its involvement in any labor abuse, China stated that sanctions under its anti-foreign sanctions law will also target two U.S. analysts, Edmund Zhu of Quran and Nicole Morgret of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. The so-called countermeasures will freeze all of Quran's assets in China and restrict Chinese entities from holding any ties with the company. Zhu and Morgret, on the other hand, are now barred from mainland China, Hong Kong, and Macau. Quran, known for its reports hinting at alleged abuses in the Uyghur minority-dominated Xinjiang, has denied China's allegations. The firm said it would continue its work, which in the past has indicated the Chinese seafood, polysilicon, and beer industries, among others. China had earlier warned the U.S. of possible countermeasures against Washington's sanctions on its business entities, saying, quote, human rights were merely a ruse to enable interference in China's internal affairs and violation of global norms. The U.S. has long accused China of forcing millions of minorities into re-education camps. While China views this as vocational training that supports economic uplift, the U.S. has alleged labor abuse and a denial of basic human rights. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on that story. We've got a pro-China narrative to begin the spins provided by Global Times. Over the years, the U.S. has conjured up vivid fantasies of human rights abuses by China. Based on this sophistry, it is sought to interfere in domestic Chinese matters. All this has been done in violation of international law, with the intent of tarring China's image. The U.S.'s private sector has been hand-in-glove in this stratagem, and China will not take it lying down. The Council on Foreign Relations has an anti-China narrative. China can saber-rattle all at once but it is well established that Xinjiang is the backdrop to mass abuse. 
So-called re-education has, over the years, upended the lives of millions Muslim Uyghur people who have been herded into correctional camps. These Turkic-speaking minorities have been subjected to untold miseries. It is well within international norms for the U.S. and its companies to expose these practices and consequently curb them. And the nerds are going to chime in with an opinion. They think that there's a 1% chance of the U.S. intervening in the issue of the Xinjiang internment camps by 2024. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. South Korea placed sanctions on eight North Koreans over illicit weapons and cyber activities. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NHK, Al Jazeera, Yonhap News Agency, and The Straits Times. Following North Korea's test of solid-fuel intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBM-class Hwasong-18, last week, South Korea's foreign ministry announced Wednesday it had sanctioned eight North Korean nationals in connection with alleged illegal weapons and cyber activities. The sanctioned individuals include the head of Pyongyang's Reconnaissance General Bureau, Ri Chang-ho, who Seoul claims worked with hackers to obtain money to fund missile programs. He's in charge of the agency that allegedly oversees the North Korean hacking groups Kim Suki, Lazarus, and Andariel, which have previously been sanctioned by South Korea. Meanwhile, the head of Beijing New Technology, Park Young Han, is accused of facilitating arms trades for Pyongyang's Korea Mining Development Trading Corp, which exports conventional weapons and supplies equipment for ballistic missiles while a former diplomat in China, Yun Choi, allegedly traded lithium-6, an ingredient used in nuclear weapons banned by the UN. The other five sanctioned individuals are Rang Sung-yu, Kim Sung-soo, Pai Wong Choi, Ri Sin Song, and Kim Pyong Choi, who works at Pan Systems Pyongyang, a weapons dealer under the Reconnaissance General Bureau. All eight people, which reportedly brings Seoul's list of sanctioned North Koreans to 83, are now barred from engaging in financial transactions and foreign exchange with South Korean nationals. This comes weeks after the U.S., Japan, and South Korea commenced new joint initiatives to combat alleged North Korean cybercrime, cryptocurrency, and money laundering activities, which are believed to be funding Pyongyang's nuclear missile program. Adam, thanks for laying out the facts. The first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Korea Joongang Daily. North Korea wouldn't be one of the most sanctioned countries on Earth if its leaders simply stopped dealing in illegal weapons trades. As Kim Jong-un's regime continues to illegally provoke the world through its obsession with launching nukes, its government officials in turn have resorted to other illegal means to gain the resources necessary for such missiles. Sanctions would be lifted and the world would be safer if the North abided by international law. RT International is going to counter that with the establishment critical narrative. The West doesn't sanction North Korea because it violates international rules, but because the North, in its pursuit of military prowess, won't bend to the demands of America's rules. If Pyongyang gets scolded for launching spy satellites and missiles, why don't South Korea or the U.S. face retribution for developing the same technologies and aiming them at the North? This is about who gets to be in charge, not who has weapons. Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 15% chance that there will be a full-scale war between North Korea and South Korea by the year 2050. 
A migrant caravan advances north as U.S. officials hold talks in Mexico. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, The Business Standard, CNN, Daily Mail, El País, and Japan Today. The head of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and other U.S. officials met with Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador on Wednesday to discuss migration as thousands of migrants move north in a caravan through the southern Mexican state of Chiapas in an attempt to reach the U.S. border. The meeting follows a phone conversation between U.S. President Joe Biden and Lopez Obrador last week in which they both expressed the need for increased enforcement at their shared border. According to local officials, over 11,000 individuals are still waiting in shelters and camps on the Mexican side of the border, even while thousands of migrants enter the U.S. illegally every day. In addition, thousands more are expected to arrive in the next few days as a large migrant caravan travels across Mexico to the U.S.'s southern border. Images and videos from the enormous march depict families making their way to the U.S. while toting heavy crosses and belongings. An activist has cautioned that by the time the caravan reaches the border, its number may surpass 15,000. U.S. Customs and Border Patrol statistics show that the number of migrants detained at U.S. border crossings has climbed by 31 percent to 69,462. The post-pandemic surge in migration has exacerbated division in Washington on the direction of U.S. immigration policies and created problems on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border disrupting bilateral trade. In the previous two fiscal years of the U.S. government, the number of arrests for illegal crossings exceeded 2 million. Eric, thank you for the facts. Our democratic narrative for the... Ah, I got a better idea. Eric, thank you for the facts. And as you can imagine, this is a politically motivated story, so the Democrats are going to have an opinion, and their narrative is provided by CNN. Mexico must do its part to halt the unprecedented surge at the U.S. border, as the current state of migration is making conditions at the southern border untenable. Biden has rightly requested his Mexican counterpart to take further enforcement action and is attempting to get regional governments to assist with the migration flow. In the face of counterproductive GOP policies, such as Texas shipping off migrants to other cities, Biden is trying to respect human rights while simultaneously addressing the influx of migrants. We counter that with a Republican narrative coming from NBC News. Biden is to blame for the border crisis. He has to take the initiative to secure the border and stop the unprecedented wave of illegal immigration. The Biden administration should end the policy that permits Customs and Border Protection to release migrants without court dates, restrict parole, which permits the president to temporarily admit some migrants, and pursue agreements with third countries, such as Canada, to take in asylum seekers. In addition, the president should turn back or detain all aliens encountered between ports of entry. And the spins are going to stop with a metaculous nerd narrative. They think that there's a 50% chance that at least 9.1% of the U.S. population will live in Texas in the next census. They think everybody's going to move to Texas? Is that They think that Texas is going to secede from the Union and then buy the other part of the continent and just make it all one big state. And then they're just going to take in all the migrants. How sweet of them. That's very nice. I know. I tell you. So that they can up their population. Instead of all my exes live in Texas, it's going to be all my mexes live in Texas. (laughs) Sorry. I I wish I had. Wait, I've got this right here. Here we go. And our final story today comes from the UK, where a report finds that nearly 400 children under the age of seven 
were sent to the Tavistock Transgender Clinic. And here are the facts as agreed upon by the Times, Daily Mail, and The Telegraph. According to data gathered by the Daily Mail, 382 children under 7 were referred to the UK's Gender Identity Development Service, or GIDS, between 2012 and 2018, including 61 4-year-olds, 145-year-olds, and 169 6-year-olds, run by the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust, GIDS was shut down in 2022 after an independent review found it, quote, not safe for children. Data from the trust also shows that the number of children it saw rose from 136 in 2010 to 2011 to 3,585 in 2021 and 2022. The trust said that no three-year-olds would have received, quote, treatment, adding that the staff would typically have one-off conversations with parents or caretakers to give support or advice. In 2014, GIDS lowered the age to prescribe puberty blockers from 16 to 11, though four years later, Tavistock psychiatrist David Bell urged a halt to hormone therapy pending more research. In 2020, a high court ruled it was, quote, highly unlikely that a child under 13 could give informed consent to puberty blockers and, quote, doubtful for those 14 or 15. In 2021, despite the Watchdog Care Quality Commission rating GIDS as, quote, inadequate, the Court of Appeal overturned the ruling. Former Health Minister Jackie Doyle Price said that the issue was that activist groups, not doctors, were referring these children to the transgender clinic. This comes as the government is considering imposing a minimum age of seven for future patients. With GIDS having built up an 8,000-person waiting list, the two new regional transgender service centers established to replace it will only be able to take referrals from NHS General Pediatric Services or Young People's Mental Health Services. Adam, thanks for the facts. The first spin is a right narrative coming from The Telegraph. This is more evidence that the UK health system was under the dangerous spell of trans activism, as countries like the US continue to promote dangerous medical procedures for minors in the name of trans rights, Britain has taken action to prevent any more children from being placed in these centers. Whatever the age, children need time to grow before medically and permanently altering their bodies. And The Guardian's going to wrap up our podcast today with their left narrative. The story of Tavistock is indeed tragic, but it has nothing to do with the reality of transgenderism and more to do with a faulty healthcare system. The clinic was largely run by junior staff who, in the face of an unprecedented rise in patients, had only enough time and resources to prescribe medical intervention rather than therapy. The UK must not allow mistakes of the past to deprive the very real needs of the nation's transgender community. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, December 28th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Thank you.